Please join me in taking out your Bibles and have them at the ready. We will be in particular, uh, we'll spend some time in Luke and John today. As we go to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to strengthen and encourage your people through your word, by your spirit. Father, we thank you that everything written in the past was written for our encouragement, to strengthen us, to give us endurance, to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, Father, be pleased to make yourself known through your word today as your people gather. And may we, through your word, see our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, when you're in a three-part series, uh, no sooner than you begin, you end. Here we are at the end of a three-part series, Resting But Restless, the Already and the Not Yet of Advent. What keeps you up at night? Now, for those of you that are sound sleepers that can lay your head on the pillow and fall asleep immediately and only wake up either with the alarm or you've just developed a habit of waking up at a certain hour, um, I'm not talking to you, okay? But for any of you who at some point or another could not fall asleep, who woke up in the middle of the night and just couldn't get back to sleep, um, Do do you ever, in those moments, find yourself rehearsing over and over again the if-onlys and the what-ifs of life? I mean, I bet if you kind of recorded your thoughts in the middle of the night, at least maybe for me, sometimes when I can't sleep, if you were to record my thoughts, it would probably be, well, if only this or only that or what if this? I mean, do you all have those kind of moments? I mean, we all live in a world that is fallen and sinful. Things just don't work the way they're supposed to work, and that is frustrating. About 5.30 this past Friday afternoon, I was down in Lexington watching a a, a high school state championship football game, And, and the game was tied, and there were two seconds left in the game. And the field goal kicker was out to kick a 44-yard field goal, which in high school is a pretty long field goal. With two seconds left, the kick went up. It bounced, it hit the left upright. It bounced down to the crossbar, and then it, it fell forward back toward the field. The game ended with a tie. I wonder if that place kicker thought shortly thereafter, if only I had taken this step, if if only the holder had put the laces here, what if, what if I hadn't looked at the defensive lineman that was going to come after me, what if, if only, you know, one of the um, characteristics of a sinful and fallen world that I think that brings to mind the what ifs and the if onlys are, is the broken promise. I mean, we all live in a world of broken promises, promises that are made, but promises that are not kept. 
Now, some promises are, are somewhat trivial, aren't they? But others, other promises are tremendously significant. If only the promise had been kept. What if the promise had not been broken? You see, here we are in a three-week series on three big promises, significant promises, life-changing promises, promises made and promises kept. There are more than three, of course, in Scripture, but we're looking at three. The promise of God's power to save. The promise of God's presence to cheer. And today, the promise of God's peace to receive. Let's remind ourselves a bit about this title, the already and the not yet of Advent. Advent, of course, meaning the coming or the arrival. The already, it's what is past. The not yet, it's what is future. And we are living in the present. And we've been hearing, and it's worth hearing again, John Stott in his commentary on Titus 2, one of the... the, uh, hallmarks of this church the grace of God has appeared he says this the best way to live now in this present age is to look to do to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically namely to look in opposite directions at the same time in other words to live the Christian life here and now in the present we've got to do two things simultaneously we look back On the first advent of Jesus, his incarnation, we look ahead, we look forward to his return to the second advent. And in that in-between time, we are both resting and restless. Could that describe your life right now? You are both at rest, but you are also restless. I mean, sometimes the rest seems to dominate and other times the restlessness seems to be in control. But I think there's a mix right here and now of us both resting and being restless. We, of course, rest in the good news of the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. But we are restless for the good news of the second advent, his second coming, his return, to make everything wrong, right. To make everything sad, as it were, glad. Advent, this time of resting but being restless, this time of the already and the not yet is, as we've been saying, a time of tension. We are stretched. Sometimes some of us might feel like we're stretched to the breaking point. Now this tension in life is undeniable and unavoidable unless you're not human. I mean, I think that's why robots are more and more coming into play in our, in, in our world. Is they don't worry. They don't get stressed. They're not tense. But oh, we humans, we cannot right now get out of it. We've got to learn to deal with it, to live with it. But there's good news. You see, God's word gives us all that we need to recognize the tension to remain in the tension, and to interestingly rejoice within the tension. And there's one requirement above all that enables us to do that. It's faith. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in good intentions, not 
faith in our efforts, not faith in, an, in a friend or a neighbor, but faith in Jesus Christ. Walking by faith in him and not by sight. We've got the witness of Old Testament saints waiting, waiting for the first advent of the Messiah. And they waited in faith. And we've got the witness of the New Testament saints and indeed our own witness of waiting, waiting in faith for the return, the second advent of Jesus the Messiah. With his first advent, Jesus brought in the kingdom of grace and with his return, with his second advent, he will usher in the kingdom of glory. And the church age in which we now live will go from the church militant, fighting the battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the church triumphant, looking and gazing on the lamb who was slain, the lamb who conquered. Advent points us both backward and forward. It's a a time of anticipation and waiting. And today, this present age is a time in which we are all, individually and probably collectively, uh, we are resting, but we are also restless. For three weeks, we're unpacking and exploring three big promises in Scripture, promises made and, as we've been seeing, promises kept. It's, again, it's not consecutive, expositional from one passage. We're, we're starting at the beginning and taking off in Revelation, and we're ending and landing in, excuse me, in Genesis and, and landing in Revelation, and we're going to make a few stops along the way. Today, we're going to consider the expectation, the inauguration, and the consummation of God's, the promise of God's peace to receive. And in particular, we're going to focus our attention on the tension present in the time between the partial and the complete fulfillment of the promise. So let's think back to Genesis, in particular Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In Genesis, we hear of a war. A war begins. There's peace in Genesis 1 through 2, but then in Genesis 3, that peace is broken and shattered, and there's war. And in any war, there are casualties, wounds, and deaths. Casualty, number one, because of this war, our relationship with God is, 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 is torn asunder, is separated. Something's gone wrong if you... If you look back to Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I was afraid and I hid myself. What? What? Adam and Eve, the high point of God's creation, walking in fellowship with him. And now, because of sin, Adam is afraid. And he's attempting to hide from God as if anyone could hide from God. So the first casualty in this war is a broken relationship between man and God. But there's another casualty of this war. It's the relationship with one another. You know, when does the blame game start in life? It didn't start with you. I mean, we were programmed in our very, as it were, spiritual DNA to blame someone else for our problems. Remember, Adam blamed Eve 
for the problem. And Eve blamed the serpent. There's there's blame, but then in in chapter 4, there's full-out conflict. You've got the first case of fratricide in the Bible. Brother versus brother. Cain kills Abel. So there's even another casualty. You know, the relationship with God is, is broken. The relationships between people is, is broken. And, and now there's a relationship that we have to ourselves that's broken and messed up as well. There, there's no rest. There's restlessness. I mean, think about if you march through Old Testament history, the, the, the frustration present in people's lives, the doubt, the discouragement, the despair. You think of Jacob and his restlessness. There's casualties in this war. The peace that that showed up in the beginning was was broken. And it's all out war. It, It gets to the point, you know, when God, as it were, regrets making man. He he there's a flood. And only Noah and his family are preserved. It's a a mess. But even in the midst of the mess, there is a promise, a promise of peace. You even see it beginning in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abram, the blessing of Abram and the establishment of an everlasting covenant between God and man. You see in number six, the Aramaic blessing. And you'll hear that in a few minutes with the benediction. And how does that blessing end and and give you peace? Give you peace. In in Psalm 29, 11, may the Lord bless his people with peace. In Ezekiel 34, one of the prophets, I will make with them a covenant of peace. Peace. Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And as we heard a moment ago in Isaiah 9, the one to come would be, among other things, the prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. In the midst of the war and the conflict and the shattering of peace, there is the promise of peace. You see, the Old Testament leans forward. It leans toward a resolution of the conflict, a a reconciliation of estranged parties, a a return, as it were, to peace. And in leaning forward... The Old Testament points forward to a person in whom this resolution, reconciliation, and return will be found. It's as if all of the promises of God are wrapped up in a person. And indeed they are, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So the expectation is that there will be peace. It's promised. But now let's look at the inauguration, the beginning, part one, as it were, of promises kept. And we see that in the Gospels. Uh, Two weeks ago, we heard that this baby that was to be born 
would have the name Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sin. That was an angel's announcement. But, but Matthew also provides some editorial comment in a few verses later when, when the scriptures of Emmanuel are brought to bear. And, and, and Matthew reminds us that's God with us. Today, there's another angelic announcement that the herald angels sing and the angels that we have heard on high declare. So let's look at the announcement of peace ahead of time from Luke 2, 13 and 14. The announcement of peace ahead of time from Luke 2, 13 and 14. If you can turn with me there, you can follow along. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What an announcement. Glory in the heavens on earth peace. Praise is offered in heaven and peace is offered on earth. And this announcement of peace, interestingly, comes at a time in Roman history where it was a period known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And yet that peace came at a dreadful cost, didn't it? Oh, sure, Rome would ensure the peace. We're just going to conquer you and subject you to our wishes, and there will be peace. There's a famous Greek Stoic philosopher, philosopher, okay, E-P-I-C-T-E-T-U-S, Epictetus. He's a contemporary of Luke, and he says this at the time, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, He is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. He gets it. He sees the difference between the peace that a human ruler can bring, an emperor, a conqueror, from the peace that has to be brought some other way. An inward peace. This peace, of course, that's announced ahead of time is the harmonious relationship between God and man. The biblical shalom of the Old Testament. The Psalms and the prophets, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel speak of this peace. The heavens rejoice and praise God for salvation's outworking and the people to whom God draws near through Jesus, what will happen to them? They will experience the harmony and the benefits that God bestows. So there's an announcement of peace ahead of time, but then peace is brought. Turn with me to John 14. John 14. Remember, Beginning in verse 15 of John 14, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. It's part of his instruction of his disciples before his crucifixion. And in verse 27, he says this. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, Jesus is not speaking just of the absence of conflict, the absence of war. He's speaking of that life the way it's supposed to be lived, life as it's designed by the Creator, the fullness of life. In John 14, 15, and 16, we see that Jesus not only is is speaking of providing His peace, but also providing his love and his joy for his people. So peace that Jesus brings is a gift. My peace I give to you. And notice it contrasts with anything that the world can give. Jesus does not give as the world gives. He gives something different, something bigger, something better. And indeed, Two chapters later, Jesus speaks of the peace that he gives that is greater than trouble, bigger and better than trouble. Look with me at the end of chapter 16. This is how Jesus concludes his instruction. You know, when an instructor, a teacher, a professor wraps up their instruction, the last thing they say usually is pretty important. And this is the last thing Jesus says before he goes into what's known as his high priestly prayer. He says this, I have said these things to you, everything he's been talking to him about. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What a way to end. I mean, Jesus here is looking beyond their collapse. He's looking to their restoration. And so he ends this discourse, which has got some really hard things to say. He ends it with this word of encouragement. Because, you know, the more I'm in ministry, the more I'm out with people, both believer and unbeliever, what people need most is encouragement. I mean, people have an innate sense of sin. It's, it, you can't get rid of it. it, it it's, it's, um, you can deny it. You can try to exchange the truth of God for a lie. But most people are under a weight of guilt. And a lot of believers are also under a weight of guilt. And so what Jesus offers here is an encouraging word. Just think about that. As we follow Jesus, we, we follow him. And here's what he does. He encourages those who are actually going to deny him, abandon him, run from him. You know, he says, in me, you're going to have peace, but in the world, you're going to have trouble. Uh, guess where the Christian lives? The Christian lives in Christ And in the world simultaneously. And the world is going to do its best to oppress us and weigh us down with worry and fear and anxiety. And here, Jesus is offering that peace that fortifies our hearts 
against the assaults of the world. And notice, take heart, uh, be of good cheer, take courage or other translations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's interesting, it is overcome, I've already overcome it, I'm overcoming it now, and I will overcome it, past, present, and future. Jesus is not saying by saying I've overcome the world that, hey guys, I have fully obeyed God's law perfectly. He has, of course. But he's not saying that. That's not his overcoming. His overcoming is going to be through the cross. Conquering sin and death through his crucifixion, through his resurrection. And so you have an announcement of peace from the angels ahead of time. You have Jesus speaking of peace that's a gift that he is going to give you. And you hear Jesus speaking of a peace that is bigger and, and better. It's greater than any trouble that you or I can face in the world. And here's the announcement of peace after the fact. You remember Saul the Pharisee meets Jesus on the way to persecute Christians, persecute those following Jesus. He meets Jesus and his life is changed. And here's what the new man says. You see, Paul takes the announcement of peace due to his birth and he announces peace due to his death. In Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. He speaks of Jesus preaching peace and making peace. And in the, to the church in Colossae, he says this, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul got it. The peace would not come from the Roman Empire. The peace would not come by Saul's meticulous, minute, carefully obeying his understanding of the law. No, the peace came through a person. Just as our banner, the grace of God, has appeared Jesus appears and our other banner for he himself is our peace. You see, grace and peace is a great name for a church and it's a great reminder of the cause and effect of the gospel. But more than anything, the, the name of this church should draw all of our attention all the time to Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God. He is the peace of God. So this is the promise made part one, but we need to get to the promise made part two, the consummation. And here we are living between D-Day and victory in Europe Day. The decisive battle at Calvary has been won through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet the war continues. But it's just a matter of time before it's over. Full and final victory is ahead 
Paul would write, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am, have been fully known. You see, even with this first inauguration, we see dimly. But one day, we will see absolutely clearly. So let's turn to Revelation and see the promise kept. Remember, the main message of Revelation, Jesus will defeat all his and our enemies. We read in the first chapter, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Patient endurance, patient endurance, patient endurance. You see, Revelation is not to confound us, to cause us to to be, throw up our hands in some kind of well, I have no idea what this is about. No, it's encouragement for believers. It's, it's the message in two words. God wins. We saw two weeks ago, last week, it's God rebuilds. You see, when, when God wins, the war is over. There's resolution, there's reconciliation, and there's a return to peace. The war is over. The lamb conquers and overcomes. One of my commentaries on the book of Revelation by Dennis Johnson, a former professor at Westminster, California, he he titles his entire commentary, Triumph of the Lamb. And that's what we see, right, in Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb. Revelation 1 through 20, and if you've been keeping up with table talk, you see that sometimes Revelation is not chronological. It circles back over and over again to show maybe one thing by several perspectives. And it wants the reader to know God wins, the lamb overcomes, the lamb conquers. And and at the end of 20, the war is over. Peace is declared. If you are in Revelation, look with me at Revelation 21. Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and remember, this was the emphasis last week. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now hear verse 4 and think peace. Think the war is over. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Peace is declared. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see the the further implications of the war being over because peace is known and peace is enjoyed fully and finally in the new Jerusalem where the river of life flows. The war is over because the lamb has conquered. The lamb has overcome. The war is over and peace is declared And the war is over and this peace that is ushered in, God's people will know it and enjoy it fully and finally forever. 
We've been looking at three big promises. God's power to save, God's presence to cheer, and God's peace to receive. Hear me when I say this. Peace. It's his to give and it's ours to receive. The peace that the scriptures speak about is his to give and ours to receive. And let's conclude with three important reminders that will help us walk by faith and not by sight in this time of anticipation and waiting for the return of Jesus. First, we're called to recognize the tension. We're called to acknowledge that life is hard. God's word, rightly understood, is utterly realistic. You know, what, John 16, 33, you know, take... In this world, you'll have, uh, in me, you'll have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Uh, that needs to somewhat be part of our gospel presentation. Because if we're doing a bait and switch, it will actually do a disservice to people. If we say, come to faith in Jesus and your life will just be wonderful, according to the world, well, when it's not, guess what? I guess that gospel you shared with me is powerless. Actually, we've shared probably a, a, a false gospel. In me, Jesus says, you're going to have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. So we are to recognize the tension. It's, it's there. We know it. And Scripture speaks of it. And second, we are called to remain in the tension. Oh, how I want to escape. Do you want to escape? Do you want to? I mean, why do you think cruise ships make their money? Why do you think the Bahamas resorts make their money? Because people want to escape. It's the old Calgon bath ad, right? Get away. If only it was as easy as putting some kind of bath powder in and escaping for a few minutes. No, we are called to remain in the tension. We're called to relax, to breathe. Why? Because we have a Savior with us. And third, we're called to rejoice within the tension. Take heart, Jesus says. Take courage. I love the translation, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Joy in the midst of the trials and temptations, in the midst of the sin and the sorrow. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. You see, the Lord has come in grace. The Lord is here now with us by the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Lord will come again in glory. Joy to the world, joy to you and me. The Lord is come. When it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, there are no if-onlys or what-ifs. The peace of God in Jesus Christ is his to give. The peace of God in Jesus Christ is yours to receive. Do you have it? Do you want it? 
He freely gives. May we freely receive. Amen. Let's conclude with a prayer, in particular a prayer written by Augustine, one of the church fathers of the 4th and 5th centuries. O loving God, to turn away from you is to fall. To turn towards you is to rise. And to stand before you is to abide forever. Grant us, dear Lord, in our duties your help, in all our uncertainties your guidance, in all our dangers your protection, and in all our sorrows your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.